Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at the Christmas story, John 3.16, and boyhood in the year of 2020 with a letter I wrote for my son's birthday entitled, Dear Bodhi. So we have a bit of a tradition at Paradox Church, and that is every Christmas season, I write a letter to my son and a letter to my daughter. The reason I do this for my sermons is because their birthdays are very close to Christmas Day. And I wrote this letter for my son today to be read last Saturday, which was my son's fourth birthday. So today's episode is about the Christmas story, but it's in the format of a letter to my son. And it begins now. Dear Bodhi, four years ago today, I held your mother's hand on the labor and delivery unit at Loma Linda University Hospital as Dr. Henderson instructed your mother to push. She pushed for just seven minutes before you entered the world with a frantic cry powered by fragile lungs. The nurse gently laid you on your mother's chest, and within seconds, you stopped crying. You moved your wiry arms slowly to try and grasp this completely new reality, and your mother and I wept as we looked at you for the very first time. Around 12 hours later, your mother and I officially settled on your name. Hey, Bodhi. We whispered into your ear for the very first time. We will do everything we can to give you the best life possible here on Earth. Happy birthday, Bodhi. Your fourth birthday is quite different than all of your other birthdays. You looked forward to today with unprecedented anticipation. You counted down to December 12 for months. You repeatedly told us about all the things you could accomplish when you finally turned four. And now, that day is here. You are four years old, and your mother and I are elated for you. We hope that your birthday somehow exceeds the monumental expectations that you have placed upon today's rotation of the earth. I'm writing to you today, Bodhi, to talk to you about the previous year of your life and the Christmas story. But I don't want to talk about the Christmas story in a vacuum. Rather, I want to talk to you about the Christmas story in the context of 2020. Because today, on your birthday, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is killing about 3,000 Americans a day, according to NBC News and the New York Times. This daily total is more than all of the Americans who died in the attacks of September 11 in 2001. I do not know how to process the grief that I feel for all of these lives that have been lost. On top of this incomprehensible amount of death, we also have given up so much since the month of March to fight this virus. Today marks the 40th Sabbath in a row that Paradox has not met in person. To prevent the spread of this virus, we also refrain from going over to our friends' houses, and our friends do not come over to our house. During this year, I constantly feel like I'm overreacting and underreacting at the same time. I feel lethargic and tense at the same time. I feel adapted and unsettled at the same time. We've quarantined and social distanced since March, and here in December, the virus is more widespread than ever. We still 
have a long ways to go with this virus. But in the middle of this distanced season, in the middle of all of this tragedy, is your birthday, which is today. And in 13 days, we'll also celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So what does Christmas mean in the context of 2020? In the Bible, there are four Gospels that recount the life of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark does not mention the birth of Jesus at all. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus in her home in Bethlehem, and then wise men came to visit Jesus bearing gifts shortly thereafter. The Gospel of Luke tells us that the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus in a stable because of the lack of vacancy at the town inn in Bethlehem. According to Luke, then, some random shepherds heard a whole chorus of angels singing about the birth of Jesus. After this chorus, the shepherds traveled to the stable and paid homage to the infant Son of God. The Gospel of John is much more interested in poetry and metaphors than the other three Gospels. So John describes the birth of Jesus with a discussion of light, darkness, the word, and the very reason for being. Between these four Gospels, Christians take portions from each of these stories and compile them into a cohesive narrative of Christ's birth. This is why we see so many nativity sets that have both wise men and shepherds standing beside a manger, even though that scene never happens anywhere in scripture. I point out these contradicting narratives to you to remind all of us that while these four accounts of the life of Christ are inspired, none of them are perfect. We need to remember that none of the men who tell us the story of Jesus's birth witnessed the birth of Jesus firsthand. These four men pieced their narratives together by hearing others tell the story of the first Christmas. Each of the three Gospels that discuss the birth of Christ are from second-hand information. And the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, decided that the birth of Christ was an unnecessary prequel. But even with all of these contradictions, there is one other element in the Gospels that lands really close to telling us about the birth of Christ. And this element comes from a first-hand source, from someone who is actually present at the birth of Christ. We read about it in the Gospel of John. In this Gospel, there is a scene where the fully grown adult Jesus is conversing with a religious leader named Nicodemus. They are speaking underneath abundant starlight. Now, Nicodemus loves to think of God in concrete and literal terms because, you know, he's religious. But Jesus, in this conversation, attempts to move Nicodemus from a simplistic view of God to a mystical understanding of the divine creator of the universe. This conversation is the closest that Jesus gets in all four Gospels to talking about his own birth and the Christmas story. Now, Jesus does not say, it was awesome, Nicodemus. There was angels and shepherds and wise men. And as a baby, I didn't even cry once. Instead, Jesus attempts to move Nicodemus into a deeper understanding of the work of God by talking about the inspiration of Christmas. Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that she gave her only son 
so that everyone who believes in her son may not perish, but may have eternal life. This is John 3.16. And John 3.16 is the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. The reason this verse is so well-known is because Christians today wield these words as a threat. Believe in Jesus, Christians testify, and you will live. But if you doubt Jesus, they warn, then you will die. Then shortly after reciting John 3.16, most Christians go on a tirade about how God is repulsed by humanity's sin and that Christ will return any minute now to enact divine judgment on those who doubt and then depart with the righteous while setting fire to the earth to bring about an end to this tired and sad world. It's exhausting. And while it's exhausting, it's what most Christians believe. But Bodhi, do you know what the problem with this theology is? The problem is that this theology skips over the best part of the verse. Jesus begins this idea by saying to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world. And Christians skip over that part and twist Jesus' words instead into a different theology that is much closer to saying, For God will love the next world. But that's not what Jesus said. According to Christ, the whole reason God sent her son, the whole reason we have the Christmas story, the whole reason we have shepherds and wise men in a manger, the whole reason we have the baby that is the reason for the season is because when God looked at the world, God felt an uncontainable love welling up within her. This uncontainable love inspired God to give everything she could to this world. And the ultimate gift of love that God could give us was God herself. And that presence began as a newborn. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate expression of love. And this expression of love was not a vague accident that happened upon us. No. Instead, God's expression of love arrived as the result of God loving us, God loving this, and God loving the world. Which means that the most godly way that we can celebrate Christmas today is to focus on the inspiration behind the Christmas story and by giving everything we have to loving this world in the same way that God so loved the world that she gave her only son. Christmas is a celebration of God's love for this world. Now, Bodhi, in your short time here on earth, it's easy for you to believe that God loved the world in 2016, 2017, 2018, or even 2019. But do you actually believe that God so loves the world in a year like 2020? Because this year, has been simply unlovable, hasn't it? Between the pandemic and fascism and inequality and racial injustice, this year has been a year that is difficult to believe that God could love this world. But Bodhi, when I look back at the year of 2020 from your eyes, I see an entirely different story about this year that is so difficult for so many of us. 
Now you had your fair share of struggles. You have only seen your GMA once during this pandemic. You can't go to High Five or Disneyland or the school that you so dearly loved. And your friends, Bodhi, your friends need to stay in their cars during your birthday party this year. We've canceled plans and changed priorities. We've been stuck in our house for days on end. And we've had to readjust just about every facet of our lives. But despite all of those things, when I look at the year through your eyes, I see you laughing and playing and jumping and climbing your way through each and every day of this unlovable year. And what you showed me and what you taught me is that you found a way to love the world in the most unlovable year possible. And I am in awe by the passion for life you continually maintained week in and week out during the year of 2020. This year started out like every other year. You jumped, you bounced, you hopped, and you danced while your mother and I tried to keep up with you. You loved any and all trains, whether they moved quickly or stood still. And with some coaxing from your mother, you put your head underwater voluntarily for the first time in January. We enrolled you in childcare and you immediately made friends. You thrived while surrounded by your classmates and you absolutely adored your big sister. She checked in on you regularly to make sure that you were okay at school and you copied just about everything that she did. During this time, our kids program at Paradox expanded at a remarkable rate while the church was in the happiest and healthiest state of mind in the entirety of our brief history. Life was great, life was fun, life was beautiful, and then all of a sudden life as we knew it was gone. COVID arrived on our shores. Tragically, this arrival ambushed the United States of America. And due to the ineptitude and pride of the federal government, the virus began to spread like wildfire. Our church services went from a packed house to an online broadcast put together by a skeleton crew of 10 people at the church. At the conclusion of that service on March 14, I thought to myself, okay, that was fine. We can do that for eight, maybe 10 more weeks. But three days after that service, we learned that even this minimalist skeleton crew format placed too many people in danger. So we adapted and we moved Paradox into our living room and broadcast from our house. Your mother's dental office had to suspend all operations and she went on unemployment. Shortly after our first living room service, the governor of California mandated a stay-at-home order. He told us that we should quarantine at home and avoid all friends and family outside of our household. In addition, we should leave our house for only one thing, and that was groceries. The parks, the schools, the stores, everything, everything closed down. Adding to all of this stress, people began to hoard groceries and supplies because they were afraid. Because of the hoarders, grocery stores struggled to keep their shelves stocked. We bought and prepared food at the grocery store that was outside of our normal routines because that's the food that was available. <laughs> if that wasn't enough, 
New York City became the first outbreak center in the United States. We heard horrible stories about people dying and being forced to say goodbye to their loved ones over video calls. Bodhi, I was scared out of my mind in March of 2020. I frequently woke up in the middle of the night with cold sweat and a racing heart. I just lost so much in a short time. I lost all the people that I love to see on a weekly basis. I lost the presence of my family and my friends. I lost the food that I love to eat. And I lost a sense of safety that I clearly took for granted before the virus. But you know what I didn't lose? I didn't lose you. I didn't lose your sister. And I didn't lose your mother. Now, it was a bit difficult to explain to you COVID-19 at first, but all you really wanted to do was go outside and ride your bike some more. So your mother and I started thinking creatively about how we could keep you and your sister active and happy during this difficult time. We lived in a strange world, facing devastating losses while trying to keep things together for both of you so that you could still have a good day. On your bike, you kept pushing yourself to ride faster and go down steeper hills. I watched you with a delighted terror. I remember thinking, please, Bodie, please don't make me take you to the emergency room right now. I'll take you any time in your life to the emergency room except during COVID. Just stay on your bike and stay healthy. <laughs> you graduated to pedals on your bike and you took off like a champ. Your mother and I high-fived each other and cheered when you began to ride under your own power. These cheers were strange to us and much needed because a few days earlier we received a crushing tax bill that we had no idea how we were going to pay. There was so much joy juxtaposed against so much sadness. We didn't just bike though. We hiked through the hills of Holdacrooks Park we splashed and played in rain puddles with, until our clothes sagged with the weight of water. We walked by friends' houses and danced and waved through the window. We ran through makeshift obstacle courses in the backyard, and you always wanted me to time you to see how fast you could run. We even set up a tent in the middle of a living room, and your sister read stories to you as you hung on her every word. And in all of that, food began to return to the shelves of grocery stores. I cannot describe to you how much better we all felt about life when we could eat the food that we wanted rather than the food that was available. There's something fundamentally human in enjoying good food. Five weeks into the stay-at-home order, we celebrated Easter. Now, Easter is a big deal at our church. Last year, and every year before in our church's history, we went up to the Appleton Ranch on Easter morning and welcomed the sunrise as we sang hymns and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This year, our Easter celebration looked a bit different due to COVID. We only had three people on the mountain with a tiny Mevo camera. Maddie and Jordan Cattenhorn sang to the camera in the rain, and then I swapped spots with them as I preached from sopping notes. Because of the rain clouds that day, we never saw the sun. It rained all day on Easter. Back home, your mother and I kept waiting for the rain to dissipate so that we could hide Easter eggs for you in the backyard. But the rain 
refused to comply. So we hid Easter eggs around the house for your sister and you. As I was hiding the Easter eggs, I thought, this sucks. No people, no son, no family, and now no Easter egg hunt? This is the worst Easter ever. After the last egg was hidden, we told Maya and you to come out and find the eggs. And you loved every second of this severely compromised Easter egg hunt. It's almost like you didn't even notice the deficiency of Easter in 2020. Your face filled with a generous helping of wonder and you sprinted around the house picking up eggs. We ended up going 10 weeks, 70 whole days without spending any time under the same roof with anyone else except for the strangers at the grocery store. When I was discouraged during that time, you would pull me out of my emotional slump and say, come on, daddy, can you hide some more Easter eggs for me? Even in the most strict part of the lockdown, you still found a way to love life. We had a couple of socially distanced occasions with my parents and with your mother's family. We began to wear masks everywhere we went at the recommendation of health officials. Your mother went back to work after hygiene received clearance from the California Department of Public Health. And when the CDC demonstrated that COVID could not be transmitted via water, we made daily trips to the pool at my parents' house. Now, just a few months before we'd made these trips, you put your head underwater voluntarily for the first time. But you were so determined to keep up with your sister that you willed yourself to become a better swimmer. You started by jumping into the pool with a floaty and kicking with all of your might. Then you put your head underwater and swam to me in the shallow water. After that, you demanded to swim in deeper water. I still can't believe this. We didn't put you in lessons because, you know, teachers could give you the virus. Instead, you just kept pushing yourself. You kept asking us to take you swimming and you kept getting stronger. After building your confidence even further up, you decided to take your talents to the deep end of the pool. You jumped off the diving board for the very first time. And after a few weeks of jumping off the diving board to me so that I could catch you, you realized you didn't even need me at all. Within eight months, you went from putting your head underwater to jumping off the diving board completely unassisted. I cannot believe how much you progressed as a swimmer this year, and I am so proud of you. All of those days at the pool were fueled by an inexhaustible supply of your love for swimming. You found a way to love life in the most unlovable year possible. Toward the end of July, the virus surged and sent a wave of panic through Southern California and our family. What was so hard is that everyone thought that the quarantine and social distancing would be over by May. But here we were in July and the virus was more widespread than ever before. I believe that it was in this month that we realized we would be dealing with this virus for a long time to come. So your mother and I, somewhere in the middle of surges and uncertainties, decided to shift to a long-term strategy for coping with this virus. One of the hardest things to express about this pandemic is how much we try to balance physical health with mental health. Obviously, the safest thing would have been to lock the door to our house and refuse to leave until a vaccine arrived at our doorstep. 
But is that really what's best for both your sister and for you? These are the kinds of questions that your mother and I constantly asked ourselves and each other during this crazy year. Living in the pandemic is a constant assessment of risk. And this assessment is exhausting. Sure, to assess risk once is not a big deal. But when the assessment is day after day after day, then that assessment becomes a marathon. So we reassessed our risk with some long-term focus on how to deal with this virus. We decided to accept the risk that we could travel as long as we didn't fly. So we drove to Mammoth Lakes, and then a month later we drove, yes, we drove, all the way to Spokane, Washington to see your cousins. You loved spending time with your cousins, and you enjoyed your time so much that you decided to use a marker to really bring out the color of your auntie and uncle's white comforter on their bed. Back home, your mother gave me a haircut for the very first time, and then she gave you a haircut for the first time. We decided to homeschool your sister and you, something we thought we would never, ever, ever do. <laughs> but that's the kind of year this is. The time when all the things that weren't supposed to happen ended up happening. And we adjusted to a long-term management of this virus. We started to get comfortable with this new way of life until the state of California became engulfed in flames. Oh, Bodie, I can barely describe how much the fires demoralized your mother and me this year. On September 6th, the thermometer read 116 degrees while ash rained down from the sky and any public building with air conditioning almost guaranteed to give you the virus. There was quite literally nothing to do. These fires blazed for weeks on end. The air outside tasted contaminated and we saw pictures of the skies above San Francisco turning orange. The fires caused your mother and I to reroute for the second time our 10-year anniversary trip in September. We then, as a family, had to cancel a trip to Mammoth with your cousins in October due to the fires. We frantically scoured the internet trying to plan a backup trip in its place to give your sister and you some kind of vacation without omnipresent smoke. We found a couple of last-minute camping sites at Joshua Tree National Park. We borrowed some camping equipment and headed down to the park with a bit of whiplash from the sudden change in plans. I wasn't even sure if your sister and you would like camping. We had tried it before, and it wasn't a big hit. But the moment we arrived at our campsite, your face, once again, filled with wonder. You helped me set up the tent, we chased each other around the campground, and you enthusiastically ate all of your food. After the sunset, we pulled out our jackets and started a fire, and I told you stories. The magnificent stars of Joshua Tree twinkled brightly over our heads. And then we roasted marshmallows. I looked at your face, and I saw an expression of complete content. Mammoth, schmammoth. There's no other place you'd rather be than right here, right now. And nothing, absolutely nothing seemed wrong about any of this to you. 
The next morning, I woke up, and you greeted me with a gigantic grin. Good morning, Daddy, you said. And you loved all of this. And all of this was plan B. You found a way to love this world in the most unlovable year possible. After two nights at Joshua Tree, we met up with your cousins in Lake Forest at an Airbnb. We found a fantastic park next to the Airbnb with a rock that you jumped off of at least 100 times. My word, Bodie, do you love to jump. I have never seen you jump without a smile on your face. No matter how hard the year tried, you continued to find joy. You dressed up as Ryder from Paw Patrol for Halloween this year. We couldn't go door to door, but your Aunt Emily planned a progressive party where we went to friends' driveways and painted or hunted or drove little cars or ran through obstacle courses and then received candy. Halloween this year was headed toward destruction, but you headed home with a bag full of candy and a huge smile on your face. Which brings us to Christmas. This year, you had the honor of turning on the lights on our Christmas tree for the very first time. Every time a present goes underneath the tree, I see that look on your face once again, where you are completely content, where you are filled with wonder, where you are so happy to be alive. Bodhi, my son, when I look back at this year from your eyes, I am amazed that you found a way to love this world in the most unlovable year possible. I tell you this because I have no idea what year you are going to read this letter for yourself. You may be 16, 22, 49, or 78. Who knows? But there's a chance that when you are reading this letter, that you are going through a tough year. You may be under financial hardship. You may have just returned to your home from a funeral. You may be in a quarantine because of COVID-94. Whatever it is, you may be reading these words in an entirely unlovable year. To you, on that day, I want to tell you that deep within you, in your very nature, you have the resources and the will to love the world in unlovable years. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw you love the world with everything you had in the most unlovable year possible. Now the critic could easily look at the love you have for the world this year and chalk all of this up to your naivete as a child. But I would argue with the critic and say, no, 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 you weren't there. My son gave up a lot for a three-year-old during 2020. But what my son kept coming back to, even when dad wanted to sit on the couch, zone out, and just watch TV, was a sense that today was not over. My son had a sense that there was more joy to discover as long as the sun was still in the sky. In your bones, Bodhi, is a resiliency that I admire. No matter how bleak it looks outside, you still believed, as a three-year-old, that there was something out there still worth loving. And in the middle of a pandemic, you kept asking me, Daddy, 
Can you play with me? You found a way to love this world in the most unlovable year possible. This past Monday, I took you golfing with me. And for the first time, you played all 18 holes with me. You swung the golf club over 100 times. You put the ball in each and every of the 18 holes. And you ran up and down every sand trap you could find. It was one of the best days of my life. And it happened in 2020. For God so loved this world, this world that has years like 2020, that she gave her only son. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. Because God loves this world. And you, Bodhi, as a three-year-old, show me what that meant in the most unlovable year possible. I'm so proud of you, Bodhi. I love being your daddy. And I love you. With love, Dad.